welcome to the RPG Breakfast Club, which seems to be a little draggy this morning. <laughs> That's all right. We're about to be waking up in like 30 minutes here. But here are our topics. Rob, you had the high roll. You want to start with yours or start with somebody else's? Uh, yeah, I'll start with mine. So I have uh, run... Um, I'm actually running a mega dungeon right now. I'm running the 5th uh, edition Dungeon of the Mad Mage. And I have run two other mega dungeons. I have run... Uh, uh, T. Gell Manor, and uh, I have run uh, my own design uh, that I call the Majestic Fastness. It's a location in the Judges Guild Waterland setting that doesn't have, that's my uh, own original work, but it's based off of uh, basically Judges Guild Bob Bledsaw's version of uh, Erebor. The it's where the dwarves of Thunderhold used to live, and uh, I fleshed it out. And then now I'm running the Dungeon of Mad Mage, and I've been running it for about uh, three months now. And I thought everybody would be interested in the nuts and bolts of running a Mega Dungeon. You could is... start out by explaining what is a Mega Dungeon for those of us who have not played D&D since 2nd uh, edition. Well, uh... A mega dungeon is basically a really large dungeon. Like, for example, Dungeon of the Mad Mage has a uh, 23 levels. And each level is about a letter-sized page maze. Uh, Teagal Manor is a huge 17-inch uh, by 22-inch manor house with a small, more smaller four-level dungeon underneath it. But it takes weeks upon weeks of to explore. Uh, my own majestic fastness was basically a huge cavern-like uh, fissure, cavern-like fissures, about a couple miles, about three miles long inside the mountain, with uh, level branching off of it. And basically, one thing that distinguishes a mega dungeon from uh, ordinary dungeon. Most dungeons are like a locale. They're like somebody's base, somebody's, uh, uh, you know, a temple complex, uh, you know, the, some an orc lair, a multi-level orc lair. While a mega dungeon is actually almost a setting in itself. What example, differentiates a mega dungeon from a roguelike? From a roguelike? Well, a roguelike is pretty much just a random collection of encounters. The roguelikes have a theme in that if you get to the bottom level, there's some uber boss that if you yeah. found all the MacGuffins and put them together, you can defeat it. But a mega dungeon, like my my majestic fastness, for example, is uh, it's basically an evil city ruled by uh, uh, an ancient black dragon uh, named Pan Calderax. And uh, Everything in there, it relates to the fact that once it was a dwarven city, 
and now it's an evil city ruled by this dragon and who has a portion portions of the old dwarven complex as well as some of the there's some new areas that have been excavated to different factions and stuff like that and there's some places that are not completely under the dragon's control so it it's pretty much you know a mini setting you know something about the size of a region except it's basically built as a maze with rooms instead of uh, a map with uh, forests, mountains, and rivers and stuff like that. Now, the Tico Manor was, it's pretty, uh, I would say, random. Basically, it's just a, a madhouse, you know, home of a family who's added and expanded it and to this so much that it's this convoluted maze but it has a, it has a bit of it has its own logic in it and uh and as far as the dungeon of mad maze it's uh basically created by a mad wizard uh one Hallister, uh 18th level mage but portions of it are controlled by other factions so and uh so it, it too acts like its own mini setting. So when I think of Mega Dungeon, the first thing that comes to my mind um, is I think of there was uh, Iron Crown uh, back in the day uh, had the uh, I guess the IP they they had licensed for Middle Earth and um, they created a Moria supplement. I don't know if anybody else here was familiar with that. Um, but it was, I mean, while it had very specific maps, it had a lot of things too where, you know, they they said basically it was so large that you would have to, or, or that you could go off and create other branches with sort of random, um, you know, they, they provide uh, different types of rooms, like here's a, here are generic dwellings and things um, so that, you know, we don't have to map the entire dungeon out. Is is Tico like that, or is it is it all very laid out, or is it? Am I thinking of something different than a mega dungeon when I think of Moria? Well, Moria is is a it's a mega can be considered a mega dungeon, but generally, uh, a mega dungeon literally has everything fleshed out, which okay. makes them difficult to write. Because sure. imagine if you're trying to take Moria, which is fine, which is, which is a great product, and uh, but imagine if you detailed everything that they had mapped out in Moria. So that would be a pretty thick book. Yeah. Now with uh, with uh, Teagal Manor, the trick to using Teagal Manor is that if you look at it, all the room descriptions are like two or three uh, sentences at most. There's one, maybe a handful of paragraph entries, but in order to use Tiago Manor, you've got to look at the map, which has descriptions like uh, wind bl whistling down uh, corridor. You've got to look at the room description, which say like bedroom, kitchen, servant's room, uh, foyer, or whatever. And then you look at the, then the, then you look at the actual content, and from that, you improvise uh, a description. Now, the downside is you got to be kind of good at improvising, but the upside is you can get everything in one book. And I think Tito Manor is only 64 pages. And, you know, 
the dungeon of the mad mage uh actually packs everything in a uh 300 page book uh but one way they do this is that each level is contained on a single letter size clip paper and uh they uh I wouldn't say they gloss over and everything, but uh, they do definitely present sketches of areas that you're going to have to improvise uh, in order to get the full full amount, especially the interplay of the different peoples and their factions and stuff like that. Uh, but the Dungeon of the Mad Mage is, pre is, a, is a darn good... Somebody who wants to do a, a, a mega dungeon and see what it's like, I recommend uh, looking at that book because they do a really good job. In my own Majestic Waterland, I did pretty much what I figure the original guys did. I had notes, and I had details, and I had monster ros rosters, and I would label all the rooms with uh, what they, with, with, with a relevant title to jog my memory, but basically I was pretty much improvising as I went. But because I had the notes, it wasn't, you know, it was consistent improvising, if, if, if you get what I mean. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it, it would be challenging for um, newer uh, dungeon masters and game masters um, without that, you know, that confidence and that level of experience with improvising. But I can see where that would work really well. Yeah, and the other thing you got to remember, if you really want to get the most out of it, you got to kind of bring the place to life. For example, the players in my current campaign, they haven't gotten deeper than the second level. And in the second level, they only got, they, they went out down the stairs and there was a complex off, a room off of it. And that's all they dealt with. And they've been dealing with most of the first level. But what, what, what happened was is they went in there and they did some things and they came out and they rested for a few days. So I, I, I kept track of how long they were out and figured what would reoccupy the space if they just cleared. So in their case, uh, they ran into the Thieves uh, Guild had a part, portion of the first level uh, that they used for, their, for uh, an underground lair headquarters. And then there was a faction from deeper below uh, called the Eye, faction of the eye uh basically it's called that way because it's run by a beholder um and they had uh, some outposts there and the players wiped out those three outposts but what they didn't get is they didn't poke in all the corners where there were monsters like gricks and growls and uh sturgis so what i did is i repopulated the uh, upper level with mon now that these outposts weren't there keeping those in check the next time, when they went down four days later, they found a whole bunch of gricks running, roaming around. And for people who don't know, a grick is like a worm with four tentacles that uh, is pretty vicious. And, uh, you know, Sturges are the blood-sucking, uh, a low-level monster, but they can be a threat in numbers, and they, they're known for their blood-sucking. So they found a bunch of Sturges wandering around, incidentally feeding on the bodies they just killed a couple days ago. And they, they, they found that they found that uh, they liked that.
So is that kind of what you mean when you talk about like the carrot and feeding, just maintaining that consistency or? Yeah. Yeah. Just like you would, if you were doing a regular setting, if a player cleared out a forest, you probably would have something move into the forest. Right. right. That people don't think of dungeons usually that way. And most dungeons are like small, so it wouldn't logically have anything moving into it right away. Well, mega dungeons are bigger, much bigger. So you can, there's a good case to make that, okay, okay to keep it a living dynamic environment, you got to look at the complete picture. Sure. Otherwise, the players will start to feel like a slog. Because, you know, it's, been three months and they only they only made it to the second level do you ever run into that situation where they the players uh want to explore the entire dungeon and is that like yeah does that turn into a slog or is it you know is that um i I, on my majestic waterlands the majestic fastness i ran the players took out one of the factions inside uh they got in there through a back door, and to them, for, for the first couple of weeks, it looked like a, a very large dungeon. And then they found the, uh, I call them grand staircases. They, they attached the, uh, the, basically the residence levels to the main cavern. So they, they explored, the, and there's three levels of the small, very small levels of the grand staircase. So they went poking through there, and they finally emerged into the Grand Cavern. And that's when it hit the sheer scope size of the place. That's when it hit them. And they dealt with one of the factions, and it was a close-run fight. And they decided to leave. <laughs> to say, okay, we, we'll, we've we been lucky so far. Let's just count our winnings, and we'll deal with this later. And they never did went back. So I thought uh, you mentioned a few things, and they're pretty interesting. Um, one was you mentioned the uh, having a backdoor, which I feel like every I, it's just to me good dungeon design. You always have um, multiple paths, or you leave the possibility for those paths, or the, for the even the player characters to come up with something. Um, and then it, it's also kind of cool that, you know, it sounds like they were so immersed with the concept of the size and the scale that they weren't even thinking of it as an environment to beat or to complete. Rather, it was, you know, something to engage with and then disengage to keep, you know, uh, to keep in character. Yeah. And, uh, it, well, speaking of multiple entrances, so um, in Tegel Manor, it's a huge manor house sitting out there. So you can go, there's a main entrance, but there's like side entrances. You know, there, there's like, there are wings to the building. And and uh, so there are a lot of ways you, you can go. I mean, oh, yeah, so I remember. So they go in there, they explore a little, they come back out, recuperate, go back, and decide to do a survey around the place. And it's so big that they, they went around this one corner of the building. And it doesn't have four corners. Like I said, it has a lot of wings. But they went around this and they saw, they looked into the window and they saw this living room with a miniature red dragon sleeping on the sofa. And they went, I remember the player go, huh, we, we got to figure out what that is. And 
And they continued on and finally found an entrance to go in there, but they never got to the living room with the red dragon. It's just something they saw through the window and they never got to it. And uh, in my Majestic Waterland, there is a big entrance that the dwarves originally created and that is continued use, but it's well guarded. But there are side entrance, some of the which the dwarves quit. Created. Some were made by later inhabitants, but they offer access to different areas of the mountain that would that the place is built underneath. So there, there's a there's a logical pattern to that, and the players just happen to get the map to one. And then in the in the uh, dungeon of the Mad Mage, the main entrance is uh, a hole that somebody built a tavern on top of it called the Yawning Portal. And they lower you, you pay the proprietor and they'll lower you into the hole and that's, you have access to the first level. However, you have sewer, you have access through the sewers. And then, you know, on the third level, uh, there's actually an access to, uh, to the ocean. And there's an evil town called Skullport. And you can get into the dungeon through that way if you want. Um, so, yeah, multiple entrances can be uh, a big deal. Or just kind of, it, it makes the, the place much more of a setting than it is, a, like I said, a place to explore. Yeah, and I, I, I would imagine you would need that with something as you scale up, right? It's one thing to suggest that, okay, well, there's this, there's a barrow and, you know, there's a it, there's a central access tunnel and a chamber under the ground. Okay, that's pretty simple, right? Um, but it's quite another thing to say, well, we're, we're going to have this um, haunted uh, town, you know, or, or something like that. Uh, well, now, you know, you're, you're covering a lot of area and there's just, there, there's, there's too many things, you know, open to the imagination. Um, and and I found my my players tend to do things. You know, I I created a, a what I consider kind of a, a mega dungeon uh, one time uh, called Nargathil. And um, my uh, players, when they there's a there, there was a cavern entrance to the Vale that this large mountain was in, and uh, they saw that it had been inhabited by you know, uh, orcs and, and goblins. Um, and they looked at it and said, well, well, this is, this is the front door, you know, um, basically. And, you know, there were, there were, you know, some barricades and stuff around it. Uh, they knew that they were there during the daytime. So they were okay being outside, but they didn't want to go in that cave. And they just said, yeah, yeah, we're going to, uh, we're going to travel for a while and look for another way into the veil. Um, so then you, you know, you kind of wake up and go, wait a second, you know, did I only create one solution to this problem or did I only leave one option? So I was like, oh yeah, this is, let's, let's see what happens. And so we played a couple more sessions and eventually they found a way around. Cool. Did you have a mega dungeon change characteristic because of his new residence? I'm going to assume that's what that means. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's part of it. I mean, it's it, 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 if you had a, like I said, a regular setting and somebody cleared the forest, then, well, it's still a forest. That's not going to change. The forest can change character depending on the inhabitants, you know. If it was a bunch of an orc tribe, a bloody orc tribe beforehand, and now a bunch of, uh, you know, hot, uh, relatively more benign, but could be hostile tribe or centaurs move in, then, yeah, the dynamics change. So with a dungeon, you know, so when the, like the, the man made, the player went in there and it was basically, the level was divided among these different factions. And so there were like war in towns almost up there. But when the players cleared all that out and went down in, then it became more of a random monster kind of thing. You know, it's obviously something was getting loose from somewhere because now, because there were, the monsters were basically of all the same type. There were Gricks in this area. There were Sturges in this area. So obviously there had to be a source for them. And uh, yeah, it can change characteristics very easily. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of times uh, you, you want to think of that, the whole picture, right, of that, that dungeon right where um why it was constructed what caused it you know whether it was a naturally occurring feature or what and then that that history and um where i'll have like a tomb and then you know goblins have maybe found a side entrance and then carved out a little nook for themselves somewhere uh where you know they can stage raids from on the nearby road or whatever um and then that becomes a different story, but then they may repurpose things that they find in there. And, and you see that like in human history, right? Where people will trade or they'll move into a city and a new culture will move into a city where there was an old culture and they'll take on and adopt some of the things. Uh, they may even mimic some of the art that they see, but it'll be a new style. Um, so all sure. of those things, you know, are definitely possible. Sometimes it's hard because you're working with knowledge that you have and the players don't, right? And so they don't know. Sometimes they're like, this doesn't make sense, you know? And, and you know it makes sense and you want to say something, but, you know, they haven't, they don't have all the information yet. Yeah. But my rule of thumb is, you know, I'd make background for either one or two reasons because I enjoy writing it for myself. But when it comes to applying that to the table, I only take that which influences what the players see, either in terms of something they can discover about a locale or the behaviors of the NPC. But it doesn't affect either one of those, then it tends not to show up in my game, even though it's there because I wrote it for myself. But uh, I'm going to you know, be mean. Pex has poked us. We're supposed oh. to pick a new topic. Oh, gosh. Okay. Whoops. He did the gentle poke, but I hate when he has to do the hard poke. So I, I am, however, not. still not terrifyingly awake. Who's next? Are we doing it in regular order or reverse order? I think it's we normally regular. go in, in regular order for topics and then reverse order for shell your product at the end. Okay. So, so Andy, up. you're up. <laughs> I I like this one. To what extent should flavor drive mechanics and vice versa? The answer is yes. See, that was easy. Uh huh. A good one. The answer is yes. Um, 
I actually am highly, highly fa- uh, fond of games that use flavor to help drive mechanics and use mechanics to help drive flavor. One of my favorites for this is actually Deadlands. Original Deadlands, not D20 or whatever, where you use cards to get your stats, where you had poker chips to use as luck points, where you played a hand of poker to see if you managed to get that demonic demonic, uh, spirit to do the the thing you wanted, i.e. your spell, right? I loved it. I will say that for some people, it was probably a little, I don't know, gimmicky, but I just adored it. So I, I actually really enjoy games that do this to a high level. I don't know about anybody else. Oh, I definitely do as well. Um, there was a um, discussion over on Friendica the other day about uh, this and that uh, also spilled over to MeWe a bit talking about um, how uh, the the flavor is, uh, can drive your mechanics and actually create a much more immersive experience, much better experience in the game, creates a better story. Uh, we were talking about magic systems. Uh, if you go back a number of years to mage the ascension um i know some of the white wolf stuff has kind of a weird reputation mage the ascension the original version i thought had one of the best magic systems i'd ever seen it was instead of being a mechanic for making things go bang and essentially having your magic users being walking artillery, hucking fireballs at uh, whatever was down the hallway. The magic was inherent to character advancement and moving uh, through the, the game universe and inherent to each character's perception of the game universe. The whole point of it was a, a contest to see whose view of reality was going to take humanity to the next level of existence. Um, yeah, Mage was very much an acquired taste, Andy. I understand it, that. Actually, it, it has to do with players for me, sadly. Almost every player I've ever met who loves Mage, they become that, that player who goes, I have a spell for that, I have a spell for that, I have a spell for that. And it's actually not how Mage is supposed to work. Like, it's, there's major drawbacks to I'm just going to whip out a spell, right? Yeah, yeah. First off, there are no spells. Well, I know, but you know what I mean. That That's actually, and they yeah. would actually say that too. Because that's not how it actually worked when you read it. And you could yeah. mess up the, the fabric of reality. And, but they used to just drive me crazy. Yeah, players like that, I generally whacked with enough paradox that reality squirted them out like a watermelon seed and gave them a blank character sheet. You know, honestly, maybe maybe then I wouldn't have hated it as much, but so many of them had gotten away with it for so long that uh, it was just like not worth playing with them in particular. And well, it took me know, off a mage. You know, I would but just, I would just that is not actually mage's fault. Like I said, it is a player Thing. Yeah, it, it, it very definitely requires the right kind of players from Age the Ascension yes. because you have to have people who can understand that there are no spells. Right. 
that uh, in what you have are fundamental knowledges of reality and you figure out how you're going to implement those on the fly. The right. rules uh, here definitely enforce the setting, Geberon. Um, the, the setting uh, in Mage is all driven by the view of how magic works in that universe. Um, from there, you know, you can trace linear descent through a number of other systems. The idea that, um, the style of spellcasting can actually drive the mechanics to some extent, or that the mechanics can support variance in, uh, things. You, you have systems where the... Uh, melee co combat mechanics will support variation in how the combat scene plays out based on how the player describes their martial arts moves or what martial arts school they're following or what have you. The, the flavor and the mechanics integrate with each other. Well, um, let, me, let, let me ask Go ahead. Let me ask you this. Run tabletop role playing. Do you need? Do the players need to know? Be aware that there are rules. Do you need mechanics at all? Yes. Uh, if yes. you if you're running a tabletop role playing game, the word game implies that there are rules. If you are using no rules, then you are doing tabletop role playing, but you are not playing a role playing well. game. Okay, well, I'm going to well, actually go well, back, because you said rules and mechanics as if they're separate things. So what are you considering them as separate? Uh, you, For me, that, mechanics and rules people, are basically the same. That's interesting, because most people never pick up on when I first, when I start, when I go down this line of argument. Okay, so the fundamental rule of tabletop role play that makes it a game is that you describe to me what you're doing as a player, and then I tell you uh, the result. Okay? So you say, I swing at the orc with my sword. So I could tell you that you hit, you miss, or some in-between result. I may tell you, if I think the result's uncertain, I'll say, roll a dice and tell me what you get. But that is the fundamental rule. Everything else is a tool to make that happen. Okay. So what is what am I adjudicating? So now I can say you you are swinging a sword at the orc. How do I decide whether you hit or not? Well, right. I I look at I look at the setting of the campaign. Okay. Say I for example I am running hard. It's a low medieval setting. So the expectation that combat will work like it does in the Middle Age of our Earth. Because if you read Harn, that's how they describe itself. Okay, there's some fantasy element, but when it comes down to fighting with swords, the expectation is going to work like real life. And then I look at the description of your character and say, are you strong? Are you skilled? You know, what, what, is, it, what, is, your, what is your description of your character? And then, because the result's uncertain, there's a dice roll. Now, the mechanics will help just mechanics having formal mechanics in my view does two things first it helps me and the player be consistent so if, if i swing a sword at a guy with chain mail 
and I'm at, uh, you know, third level of experience, I know that I'm going to need, say, a uh, 14 or better to hit on a D20 because that's a consistent wave. So, and I, and uh, presumably that's consistent with how it work in real life because that's what we said the settings about. And it helps the players because the one thing that players I find hate more than what anything else is feeling like they're taking random shots in the dark. They get if, when that happens, they they get they freeze up. They can't make they don't they don't know what to decide because everything is seen random. So by having a setting of rules saying this is what will happen at this point, uh, that helps them get more comfortable with just being the character rather than worrying about. So here you're saying that having a mechanic that supports the setting and that then allows you to implement the rules um, brings the players a better, a better experience of that setting. Yes. And, and in fact, I would argue that is, if you do not do that with, table, with your tabletop role-playing campaign, then it's kind of missing the point. I mean, it, every campaign should just start, start out, what is my setting? Okay, what are the rules? Then, then you go, what are the rules I need to run with this setting? Because nine times out of ten, the arguments I've seen online is because a guy has one view of how the, his setting should work, whether it's fantasy or science fiction, and another guy has a different view, yet they're using a set of rules that doesn't match any of their views. Okay, and it's never, and they never, you know, bother to ask, well, how is this really supposed to be working here? So, um, so, so, so you know, like, okay, so go for on. you, the rule is, is that we are playing a game in these, this is the, the, the setting, and this is how things work in the setting, whereas the mechanics are what the book list says rules on how to do that. Yeah. And, if, if, and I if would the, still if, say the answer is still a yes and both should, should drive the setting. Yeah. And this is getting a little far away from uh, where I had really uh, pitched this topic because what I was looking at was basically an integration between the rules slash mechanics and let's just merge them and quit uh quit uh splitting uh the difference there you know basically between the written function of the game functionality of the game and the setting of the game that um you know your mechanic the how you roll the dice and what the and what you are rewarded for and what you are not rewarded for should be uh, integral with the setting. Uh, for example, you could look at uh, Star Wars, at the Star Wars universe. Uh, the way the Force works in the Star Wars role-playing games, that uh, sets up a reward and punishment mechanic where if you... Um, if you follow the light side of the force, yay, everything's cool. 
But if you start acting like a jerk, you get dark side points, and your character starts getting pulled over to the dark side, and you have to play that. Sort of. Dark side points only work, at least in the Saga edition, if you use the force for something jerk-like. If you just take a knife and skin somebody, which is very jerk-like, it's not a dark side point, technically. Yeah. Because I've, I've had a character who... Yeah. So... Just saying. But the yeah. idea is still well, there. As far as the mechanic goes, the mechanic is is that if you're using the force for bad things, which is, I think, where you were going with it, that your character starts following that path or gets into a gray area where they have to redeem themselves. And yeah, but, that's only done through the role play. But what I'm hearing is not a really concrete definition in English of how the force works. You said... Oh yeah. Oh, okay. So, so you, you get you wait a minute. You get, you get dark side. I assumed you understood that uh, oh, that you knew the game system. Sorry, I apologize. In oh no, I I know there. I know a little bit about WEG, and I know about the two editions of uh, D twenty. Uh, uh, so Star, the saga and the earlier one, I think. But the thing is, is is which of those reflect a verbal description of the force? You know, if they, are they having contradictory views of the of the impact of the dark side? Because in, when I'm reading the novels and what George Lucas says, there's not a lot of there's a lot of disagreement on the fine point. What is dark side and what is light side? Actually, it's very clearly defined in at least Saga, and it's been forever since I played West uh, West End games, D6 version. It's it's on the shelf, but I haven't played it in I don't know twenty years. So I don't remember everything about that. Saga I've played more recently. It's very clearly defined, which is dark side are these particular basically spells. Because let's be honest, that's what the force is, is kind of their spell system. Not really, but yes, right? Chain lightning is lightning, which is whatever, right? So it's either using a particular set of spells or it is using a light-sided spell in a dark side way. So something with an evil, angry intent. And actually, it spells it out pretty clearly in the game mechanics, as you would want it called. Yeah, but my point is, is that that reflect the, the source material? I think it does when you start looking at, so how is it that the emperor looks like an awful, eagle, ugly old man? With the source material, not in the beginning especially, because you start going into one through three, which I don't want to talk about because I hate them with a passion you can't understand. But, yes, that's how they basically explain how the emperor got such to be an ugly, bitter, nasty old man. And also how they went into Luke in the novels basically becoming a gray, where he had kind of dallied between the two concepts and letting the anger and things get a hold of him. So, yeah, it does. Okay, so it's the WEG view of the, of the Force? It's the much older. It's much older. And like as... I said, I do not remember enough about the system because it's been 20 years since I played it. And I could go downstairs and look it up, and I am not going to. I am too lazy uh, and too tired uh, this morning. Right. <laughs> I'm well, too tired newer, and too lazy. What about the I, newer the, one? The new one? I have a personal disagreement with having to buy specialized dice, so I have not bought the new one. I don't like to have to buy specialized dice to play a game. 
I don't know why. I know other people don't agree, and I'm okay with that. I just don't like having to buy specialized dice. Yeah, it, it, it was a step from... It, it killed my interest in it, that's for sure. I, 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 lose, I own tons of dice. I love buying dice, but I also have been known to misplace and lose them, and I don't want to have to buy an entirely new set because I lost a dice. And so I just, I don't, I haven't played it. I'll be honest. So I, I will say that as far as I don't remember West Ends because it's just been too long. But yes, actually it does. And it does work with the setting. And it gave a structure mechanically for GMs and players to deal with that. So I would say, yes, it does. Yeah. I would just want to. I just want to point out, though, I have known people who got a hold of Saga D twenty and and the newer one by uh, Fantasy Flight and the old one by by Weg, and they didn't. It didn't work for them because they had a different view of the Force based based on the source material. Well, and, we get into which source material on that because there's the original novels. Of which I read mm -hmm. up until they killed off Chewie, and yes, I've been told, well, they did have to use a moon to kill him. I don't care. You killed off Chewie, I quit reading at that point. Okay? And I have read, I mean, I've read even the crazy stuff such as The Courtship of Princess Leia, which I actually liked. And I don't care if that makes me a chick. I liked it. Don't care. And I own the original Han Solo trilogy, and I've read those. Hey, and I, I like have that. watched the movies. I like... And I I like I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I like the Red Velvet Room, so I I, okay. I, know, I know what you mean. Okay. So I have read all of that, and I have watched all of the movies. But you have to go into whose version of canon. You know? I mean, you, you, you just kind of... They've changed it and evolved it, and I kind of totally hate the whole midichlorian bullshit. I do. Sorry, guys. I hate it. Sorry, but I do. But... Support, support. <laughs> but the whose version of how the Force is kind of which version are we going with? So that's going to be very dependent on what your players think it's supposed to be versus how the book thinks it's supposed to be and what's canon at any particular time. So okay. that, that's, I, you that, know, that's why I stress, you know, you start with the setting first, because even on something as uh, widespread as Star Wars, people can hold uh, right, but, but big then, differences on view of what, what they the, can. Or, but then you should even, be as a good GM, you should be moving it towards what your players expectations are or what your expectation is, and then clearly defining that to the players. And if a mechanic or rule does not do that, then you simply change the mechanic or rule so that it freaking suits your table. I agree 100%. So, but as a, as a thing, I think that, again, I think Deadlands works fairly well at doing this and bringing in stuff to give a flavor. And I think that Star Wars did too, for the most part, in creating flavor. Whether the flavor works for any particular individual, meh. But I think they did work. And Pex and is poking the, us again. And whether the flavor and the mechanics work together, we never really got to. So, next topic. Um, 
Is this my turn? I mean, I think it's actually Andrews, isn't it? Nope. I, no? I critical failed. Oh, you did. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, so, then yeah, it's your turn. Well, mine's the next one on the list there, um, I, uh, which was player expectations. Uh, are there generational differences? And I actually had a little bit more, but I thought of this literally at like midnight last night. And then I thought, oh, well, I won't tell anybody because they're all asleep. And then X, of course, got on and asked me. <laughs> so at two uh, in the morning yeah <laughs> yeah pex i was, I was like i'll be polite and i won't wake pex so <laughs> um so anyway um little did i know uh but yeah I, I i meant for this to be expanded beyond just you know are there generational differences um you know it's what kinds of differences are there um do the player expectations matter um and Ooh. you know maybe maybe we should talk about it so, um, I refereed a bunch of 14 year olds at the Boy Scouts. You know, I used the same thing. I, uh, I mean, the biggest difference is they don't understand my pop culture references. So, fine, whatever, I don't use them. You know, like, you know, my son, I have a 14, I have a 15 year old son, and, you know, some things he just doesn't get. He, I mean, he didn't. Until last year, he didn't get what any of my Monty Python, you know, Holy Grail uh, cracks. So, um, oh please, I make uh, Gilded Age pop culture references, and nobody gets those. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as far as uh, I find that doing the, the basics, uh, the clear communications, you know, saying, "Hey, this is what the setting's about," and here's what your the different choices you have as a character, you know, and you know, the fact this game is gonna it's about you pretending to be a character, having interesting adventures in this place with what am I running substituted for this place. I it seems to work across all generations. I find uh I find uh you know, they they're somewhat savvier than some of the kid remembering some of the kids I dealt with with high school. Uh there's some clueless ones, but overall the the fact that there's the internet and stuff. They seem um, slightly more aware of the world. You know, more so than I would expect. It just surprised me, you know, how much they actually knew yeah. uh, about different things. And, uh, you know, especially while they didn't get, like, Monty Python jokes they understood the whole fantasy the silly fantasy versus the serious fantasy you know lord of the rings really helped with that you know popularizing uh fantasy on a large scale so and then there's you know um not so much for kids for college age there's game of thrones you know that that so some of the tropes around that are spread spread out a lot further than i've seen in past years uh, and, uh, you know, as far as science fiction goes, I mean, it's just been a, it's been a, on a rampage since the late 90s. Just grows year by year. So I, I think one of the reasons why I kind of brought this up is one of the things that I've seen um, is that each generation has its point of context. And, and I, I don't. I guess I, I, like I said, I didn't want to just limit it to that generations because when I say that, I'm basically uh, 
sort of clustering people in groups and I don't necessarily believe in collectivism. I, I believe that everybody's an individual, but um, we all have our point of reference more or less. And it's interesting because seeing uh, the way that we played role-playing games uh, for me, you know, it was primarily in the eighties. Uh, some of these guys go back to the seventies and, and some probably even earlier. Um, but uh, for me, it was primarily in the eighties and, and things that I remember that, that affected tabletop role-playing games and that were starting to affect things like we were looking into online play and we we're looking into muds and things and then, the, and how that transitioned. And one of the things that really struck me was that a lot of times uh, we were playing the games very mechanically at the time. And I don't know if it's because I didn't have a lot of good point of reference. Um, we maybe a little less storytelling. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so there was a little of that. And, and I also remember that games could be kind of punitive. Um, you know, I, I remember when, um, you know, the first, uh, online, you know, MMO EverQuest, the first 3d MMO came out and it was really punitive. Um, and at least I felt so I felt like death, you know, meant something, but it was, man, it was a lot of, it was a lot of hassle. Um, and you start to see as, as those things transition, um, you know, the questions of like, why did we do it this way? You know, why does the game have to be punishing? Why do I have to have something that I can only use once per month? Is that good or is that bad? You know? Um, and so those questions came out and I think that now we're starting to see game design almost lean the other way where I see like, you know, in, in 5e, you, you, there's three death saves and I'm scratching my head going, well, they did away with a lot of the other stuff, but that almost seems too easy. And, um, you know, so, so I see, I see good and bad. I see us just like, as we, we move on, um, things are improving, but at the same time, it's like, um, you know, sometimes do we go too far one way or I don't know, I'm just throwing some things that I've observed out there. Well, when I was growing up, um, there was a time, first uh, 1980 to 1983, when I was in high, you know, between junior high and, and just quickly going over to high school, um, there were players who tried to kill other players. Still are. Yeah, there still are, but it, it was a thing. And we were aware of who did this. And I, it, you know, I, was, I was from a small town, but D&D &D was so popular during that era that, you know, even in a small town, there were a lot of players. And But because it was a small town, we knew about each other and we knew which ones were had issues, to be polite. And uh, the thing is, over the years, um, Started in the early 90s, uh, I noticed that uh, um, some of these players started to disappear. And, it was, and I, then I saw them reappear, but they were playing, uh, you know, uh, I believe it was Quake that was the first major multiplayer version uh, of first-person shooter. Oh, they, they went playing... to something where their, their PvP was actually rewarded, where they could go camp right. the spawn points. Right, and and we had uh, another type of player I would call a stuff quester, 
not like they totally disappear, but they would re reduce greatly in number because they, now they all seem to be, you know, I noticed they disappearing early on because it was, it was the late 80s when those computer games started first hitting. And, uh, Crunchy bit uh, collectors. They went all to play yeah. off. To, uh, went off and played Pokemon. And uh, you know, so I think what happened is, is that as as it started with Dungeons and Dragons, Dungeons and Dragons was the only show or role playing game for the only show in town where all of these interests and needs could be uh, okay uh, expressed. But when an, when alternatives. And in that that niche was better, okay, that got paired away from the role playing crowd, not never completely, but enough that was noticeable. So soon, all you had left were the people who were interested in pretending to be a character having interesting adventures, as your majority of the people, and uh, um, and I think some of the the systems focuses on skill. Uh, even to some extent, the three death rules. Why the you know later edition D and D characters are more survivable, have more options, is because players want the choices that you would have if you were really there as within that setting. So they don't, they they just they're not there just to, to hack away at monsters from top from dungeon level one to dungeon level uh, hundred. Diablo does a much better job. It's and it does it at a time that's more convenient, and you don't have to argue with the referee, the referee of Diablo. It, it's it's fair, irregardless of whether you're having a bad day or it. It never has a bad day, except when your computer crashes. But that's and let's thing. let's steer back to tabletop for a second here. Um, if we're going to talk about the evolution of uh, play and the evolution of games and um, players over time. We need to look at the rise of story games and the indie market because within the past generation, uh, we've had a marked rise in games that are minimalist as far as mechanics go and much more invested in the story something like Monster Hearts, for example, which I don't know if anybody here is familiar with Monster Hearts. I'm aware of it. Okay. So, yeah, there you've got a a, a very deep story going on with just enough mechanics to support uh, re event resolution and put some basic constraints around the game world as to what is and is not possible. We've seen a lot of that sort of thing coming out in the past about 10 years. Uh, well, so I think, I think we've got a lot of people of younger people who have come into TTRPGs that are more invested in the story than in the dice rolling and I'm all for that. Well, I'm going to disagree. I say it's just that the fact that today's economics is better, it better, it's better able to support niches. Yep, phooey to my eye, whatever. Oh. I, I, I would actually agree with Andrew on this. So if you look at, and I've had, I think it was Mr. Hack and I would get into it, 
where he's talking about it's just a game and he's comparing it to Monopoly. And I have finally, thanks to Pex, gotten to play a bit more because I own some of the the pamphlets, but I haven't gotten to play them. So I've gotten to play early, early D&D or fairly early D&D, right? And I mean, we had one poor guy, he, he made his character and it died and he had to make another character and it died and, you know, it's you you don't have time to even become invested necessarily in a character because you didn't get to choose any of the things at, because your dice rolls pick them for you and then you don't really get time to even invest in the character because eh, you had two hit points and you died anyhow so that's why i feel i mean he's doing this comparison to like monopoly you picked a shoe or a thimble you really didn't care you aren't as invested. And I think that players nowadays are so much more invested in creating the character and backstories in developing the character. Now, that being said, I think going back to the original thing and trying not to group people collectives that there are, and I will take you with the generational quote unquote, not necessarily being just age. There's a lot of things that could fall under different types of players and not just play styles but backgrounds and genders and things like that and uh, it, but i would still say that as a whole people are much more invested in the story in the characters and the development of the story and i personally love that and i like our high role play games tables so i'm happy about it I am less happy with the somebody had a familiar who was a crow and they didn't understand why I said it should be named Brandon. Like that, <laughs> that made me less happy than people who are like 15 younger than me. But as far as their investment in playing, I think that people are more invested in the story than they were at the beginning. But if you look at how the rules were in the beginning, you weren't expected to be. It was based off of wargaming and a board game. And there isn't that investment and now we've developed through gaming the last 20 something years a huge investment in characters and stories and backgrounds and change and growth yeah. well i just think i just think a war game is a poor way of for collaborative storytelling and that the, the most popular way of collaborating on storytelling isn't using the rules of a game it's through what the people do with you know, people mock it as fan, fan fiction, but their whole forums have tools that allow people to collaborate on huge, sprawling stories. And if you go into these forums, I mean... Well, people... and when I was in seventh grade, we used to have a notebook that people passed back and forth and wrote huge stories. But we're talking about tabletop role-playing and the change in the industry and... I think that we are getting much more invested. I think that players of different groups and different ages are very invested in it. I think that the rules and mechanics can help or hinder that depending on the game, but I think that we are getting much more. Well, so that's my opinion. You know. I'm really glad I like brought up this topic then because listening to y'all was really great. Um, and I'm going to say that I actually agree with all three of you um, because I think that your observations about moving in the, the direction of storytelling uh, being the priority, it, that seems to be a, a, a general industry trend. I think Rob's observations are like, you know, it's like an epiphany. I'm like, 
you know, hearing it and going, oh, yeah, you know, as far as people vectoring off and finding their niche, right? Um, and because now there are more things available, people said, hey, I want to play this game. I actually didn't even really want to play a tabletop game. I wanted to go over here and, and, and play uh, EVE Online or something, you know. Um, and, and it's funny because you see that. And I've seen people that join games that it's a really unfortunate thing where you'd see somebody and they'd say, well, I'm really excited to go play this game. And then they get into the game and then they would say, well, now I remember why I hate this game. And that's a terrible, you know, it's, it's terrible, but it's like almost, they were almost unaware of their own expectations of the mechanics. Um, they were excited about the concept of the game. Um, you know, because you see the cover to, to Dungeons and Dragons and you think, hey, I'm going to spend a lot of time, you know, delving. Uh, but depending on how you run that game, depending on your DM, um, you're going to have, you may have a very different experience um, depending on the particular rule set you use. Uh, you may find yourself. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry, go on. Oh, I was going to say, you may find yourself crunching a lot of numbers. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm going to say that for me, as somebody who likes the story driven stuff, um, I believe that I would probably not use uh, a D20 or like a, 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 a uh, an addition, part of the OGL, whatever, uh, to make a science fiction game. I know it's been done, uh, but, you know, I probably wouldn't do that because it wouldn't align with my expectations of of a science fiction game. So my perspective, to give a little background, my perspective is born of the fact that I ran for when I when I did some fantasy role playing, I ran the same setting for three decades, the majestic waterland. However, I did not use the same set of rules. I started out with AD&D. I bet, and I'm only picking out the the ones that I ran campaigns with. I did a lot more one shots uh, with different rules. But I started out with AD&D. I jumped to uh, Fantasy Hero, i.e. the champion system, the superhero role-playing game. that They had a fantasy version of it. Then I jumped into GURPS. Then I uh, jumped back to OD&D and wrote my Majestic Waterlands supplement. And then I also have run a few campaigns with D&D 5th Edition. So my perspective is that it's all about the setting. Whatever it is you're setting, and this applies to when I run science fiction or whatever, I always look to the settings for, then I look to the rules that I'm choosing to use, whether it's GURPS, Hero System, AD&D, or OD&D, and I see what fits my setting, and I will use that. Anything that doesn't fit my setting, I will alter. And, it's a, it all, and that's how come I can run my campaign the same, basically in the same way, having the players doing the same, which is which I define the players are doing the things that they always have done in my campaign for the same reasons. You know, whether it's wealth, greed, the desire for fame, the desire to make their mark. And uh, it works regardless of what rule system I'm using. There are different nuances, obviously. GURPS is far more deadly than AD and my AD&D campaign was. Uh, people got smashed through brick walls when I was using Fantasy Hero because of Relics of the Champions rule. And as for a, a focus on the, the story and stuff like that, some pl there are more than a few players who play for the challenge. 
you know, they, you got to understand the players who like random dice rolls are not there to treat their players as game pieces. They will role play the heck out of their character. But what they view, what many of those people view it as, can I thrive and prosperous using these statistics? Even though I did not pick them, even though there was something I would never pick, can I still survive and profit? And if you die the next game, I guess the answer is no. But it's about the challenge of it. And that's the way it is for me as a player. I'll play random. I, I like point by system, but I'll play random. And if I get a random character, oh, well, I guess this guy has an eight wisdom. I guess I'm going to have to role play that one and proceed on from there and see what happens. And then finally, what I would say is I have players in my campaign, which are very role playing heavy. If anybody who's read my material knows. Uh, I have players who are not interested in, in anything more than playing a version of themselves with the power of the characters. You know, they when John comes to my table, and John is John, he just has the power of a magic user. And I can live with that. The, sure. the only rule that I found that I need to enforce is that you role-play and that you interact with, you role-play in first person. Whether it's yourself or a completely different personality, I don't care. But if you go up to the shopkeeper and you don't say, oh, my magic user goes up to the shopkeeper and asks if he can buy a sword. No, you look me in the eye. I asked you, you look at me in the eye and do what you would do if you were walking up to a shopkeeper. And that, and the reason I'm doing that way is because if players treat their pieces, their characters like game pieces, then they act like they're game pieces and do what I call mad dog choices. So like burn a village with a fireball when if they were role-playing with me in first person, it, it, their social instinct kicks in and, you know, this is a village. It has women and children. Maybe I shouldn't blow this up with a fireball and get what I want another way. Sorry for the long spiel. Andrew, you want to go ahead with the last topic? Oh, yeah. Let's see. Let me scroll back here. And uh, how do you keep a game as balanced as possible? We're going to have to start out by defining balance, and I'll wait till Rob so, finishes that. Well, actually, it was mine. So Okay, I'll, go for it. I was define, define balance for us. Up very, very late. And what I had last start was reading before I fell asleep was um, John Wick. He does seven C's. And anybody knows that one? Um, had was writing an article, blog post, something about um, oh goodness. What did he title it? There you go. Give me a second. Chess is not an RPG, the illusion of game balance. And so he starts out with talking about rules and mechanics and then into, you know, how a game is balanced. And that basically, it pretty much goes into the, it's not going to be balanced. There is no such thing as balance. When we're trying to make games, we're trying to make it so that the players have a fairly even setting kind of well that setting and even um how to put it you you don't want everybody's going to go and play this because that's overpowered and then that's the only thing that gets to do the actions and things like that everybody wants to create a game where the different types of players and characters can 
shine in their own moment. So as a game designer, we try to create this kind of illusion of balance, right? But there's always going to be people who the dice like better or who even if it's not set on dice rolls, it's just a is better at talking RP. You know, the idea that, well, I have a high charisma, so that makes it okay and I don't have to try to role play it out. There's always going to be these different things, right? It's not chess. It's not a war game. We are tabletop RPGers. There's, and it, we've actually been kind of bouncing back and forth about this somewhat in the chat. Balance is an illusion, but it's an illusion we're still kind of striving. So as GMs, not just as game makers, how do we attempt to make the game balanced so that no one particular character or class or discipline or whatever is so overpowered that it ruins the game for the other players? Does that help? Yeah. Um, I would... Uh would start off with the idea that I think we've we've discarded the idea, some of the old ideas of balance, that uh, trying to mechanically balance the power levels of um, the various types of characters in any given situation, and gone more to a model where each type of character is powerful within their own domain. Uh, for example, in 1879, um, the big game hunter and the soldier are powerful in physical combat. The Byron sucks in physical combat. It's not his domain. On the other hand, when you're confronted with an analytical engine and you need to hack into it in order to get blackmail material to use against uh, the, um, you know, the villain, the soldier doesn't know one end of a keyboard from the other without sitting on it, uh, but the Byron is now in their domain, and it has great power. So it's a matter of, to some extent, I think, balancing across the adventure rather than trying to uh, to balance across character types uh, you you look at the adventure itself and make sure that each type of character has their moment in the spotlight that okay you've got a physical uh, showdown so that your physical sorts uh, can uh, stand up and unload on the enemy You've got a negotiations uh, situation so that your aristocrat or your fiddler or whatever face character you have has a chance uh, to, to show off their social uh, skills. You have some technical or magical confrontation so that your mages and weird scientists and brassmen and so forth have a chance to show off. And in the end, everybody's gotten a turn at center stage. And to me, that's balance. That every player at the table has had a turn in the spotlight, had a chance to strut their stuff uh, and, and make a contribution to the team effort. I'm, I'm going to say that 
uh, well, I kind of agree with John Wick in, in the broad sense. And uh, I do agree with you uh, with uh, about players having their turn. But I disagree with the use of spotlight because it's just the situations are always nuanced to the point where in any arbitrary situation, there's someone who's going to have an arbitrary uh, a, a, a skill set or a way of doing role playing or whatever, just optimize for it, and they're going to shine. What I find, and what I do, you know, I, I kind of talk about this when I talk about sandbox, is that players get their turn to do something interesting. It may not be the spotlight, like it may do literally nothing to the adventure, uh, to further the goals of the adventure, but it's okay because it was interesting. And that's all. That's what I think players all want. They want to be able to do something interesting. And if it does, if you get the added bonus, like it wins the day, great. That's even a better feeling. But you know, and the other thing is, you know, I do is let the players set the direction, so everybody gets the chance to do their own thing within the context of the campaign. And what I find is the group hash out. You know, you know, Bob really wants to go. To the library and get the the book of Evan, uh, you know, of Evan pictures. And I think we need to do, you know, and said, yeah, you know, we we've been prompt saying to do this for the last, you know, three sessions. Can, we're nearby. Can we go do it? And most of them say yeah, and they know that I'll go along with it, I, even though I have an explicit hook for some other things going on. So I think it's that's that's my view on the situation. I'm balanced. I mean, to me, balance is all about whether it makes sense with the character, it makes sense with the uh, setting, and whether the player has a turn to do it, what interests them. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I basically, uh, yeah, all that. Um, <laughs> I, I'd say that for me, uh, my favorite types or, or my favorite games are, you know, the ones at home. Uh, where you know you know everybody. I'm not saying I don't have fun playing with strangers too. That's a blast. But uh, where you know everybody and it's a smaller group. Um, you know, three to four players maybe. Um, uh, mainly because it it things just sort of flow. Then um, I don't have to necessarily work as hard at making sure that everybody has an opportunity. But you know, you have to take things into consideration. Um, we have a. You know, we have a berserker archetype that's that's very uh, focused, right? He's he, he, their mechanic is is pretty pretty narrow in in um, philosophy, if you will. And so, you know, they're basically get in, you know, get hit a lot, stay in combat for a long time, and and build, you know. Um, and so, given that and understanding that, you know. Uh, do you give what sort of opportunities do you give them to role play or to pursue that mechanic? Um, I've heard players who were very particular about, you know, if I was given a skill or a mechanic, um, I'd like to be able to use it. And, and that's, that's a thing that I hear. So not, not all players have that expectation that they're going to use all their, but, but oftentimes you'll see uh, a player will focus in on a particular skill that they have. And really, when they mention that, they're basically sort of handing you something, whether it's for the next game or, or whatever, is now you understand that this is something they're interested in. You build that in. Um, 
other things are, uh, you know, tuning your encounters um, so that uh, you you sort of customize things based on the makeup and the dynamic of your party. Um, if you have a heavily melee party, um, you know, how how do you plan to tune an encounter uh, with something that that uh, might be difficult for them to engage uh, at close range? Um, you know, is that really fair? Um, how, you know, how do you how do you manage that? Is it, um, you know, are we you going to create a situation where they have to dispel something, and now there's no there's nobody in the party that has that ability to dispel something? Well, now you've just locked them in a box and said, "I've given you no options." Um, so you have to kind of think about that ahead of time, um, and giving everyone their their moment to shine sometimes is just as simple as uh making sure that when you have uh players that dominate the table because there are there's those super players that know how to role play they do all the accents they do you know and, and they 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 know all the lore and and everything um versus you know the player that's quiet and is maybe unsure of of what they're they're doing um is just taking a moment to say okay i understand that's going to be you know your action right now let me make sure that you know let's let's go around the table and make sure that everybody else has an opportunity um you know to to chime in because that's one of the things that just naturally happens right some of us are very talkative and we engage right away and we don't realize that other personalities maybe aren't that proactive uh and they they want to participate but they get drowned out sometimes can i chime in um, um, I think one of the hallmarks that you should aspire to, anybody should aspire to as a referee is learn how to be a good coach because that player that you're talking about, the one who's not shining and stuff like that, not only, it's not just not enough to, to give them the moment to, to try to shine. You need to coach them on whatever Whatever they, whatever skill that they're lacking in, basically. Like I had shy players, I had uh, players who were not tactically aware. So I'll coach them on whatever their weak point is. I use my experience to coach them on the weak point, and it's a little bit of a art because you don't want to be heavy-handed about it and lead them through the nose. But they got to, they got to be taught. Otherwise, they'll never be able to do it themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had a um I, I've had folks play um sorcerers in a three five E campaign and you know the solution to everything was magic missile. And, you know, I'd go back and talk to them, you know, in private and say, Hey, you know, you've got all these other spells. Um, your character's talented. He's got this natural magical ability. Um and I've noticed you only pretty much utilize this one spell. Um, maybe, you know, start to think of creative ways that you can solve problems without just shooting magic missile. And so I would do some of that. And then sometimes, and it's kind of, you know, but just to throw them off base, I take that away as an option. You know, um, you, you cast blindness or darkness and suddenly always hitting your target is is kind of relative you can't see your target um so you give them a new challenge uh so i would do some of that too um but yeah absolutely that that sort of coaching factor 
um, where, you know, you're, you're trying to help people along without necessarily telling them how to play. And that's tricky. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a bit of a, bit of a uh, bit of a balancing act there. Well, that's the point. I mean, as a GM, part of your job is to try to balance a lot of different factors between players, players and story, in and out of character expectations, you know, mechanics, all of it. It's never going to be perfectly balanced. It just doesn't work that way. And I kind of like John Wick and the idea that it's never going to be perfectly balanced. And if you want perfectly balanced, go play chess. Not quite exactly what he said, but pretty much. You know, I or, think it comes down to expectations. And when I'm running a table, we're telling a group story. You look at I actually like the idea, and I know you didn't like the term spotlight, but really you're just using a different term. We're letting the players have their moments, use their things to do stuff. And, I agree um, with that. I mean, it, semantics aside, we want all of the players to enjoy the game because that's what makes it a good game. So letting them each do things that lets them shine, sparkle, have the moment, play their characters well. And sometimes, yeah, you can kind of coach. There's different ways of coaching. I've coached players before. I don't usually call it coaching, but again, that's, I mean, we're talking terminology. I've had out of character conversations like, hey, I noticed that you're not doing as well. I've gone so far as to actually bring in an NPC that's the same class, discipline, whatever, to give them ideas on things that they could do that maybe they hadn't thought of by seeing someone else of that discipline do different things, you know? So I, I think that in general, for me, you're never going to have some sort of perfect balance. And I do actually like what Andrew said about more of, and yes, it's harder at like a game demo or a one shot at a convention. But when you have an actual set table where you're telling a story, you don't worry about the incident. You worry about the entirety of the game. So I thought that was a good point. Uh, one thing I, okay, go ahead. Um, one thing I do because um, I wouldn't say I, I dump a lot of information on my character, but I, I do present the life of the setting. And uh, so one thing I'm chill about if, is the point where the player goes, you know, I would decide something differently if I knew X. And, I, and my general response is, is if they pipe up, not when it's like three or two or three sessions later, but they popped up and say, hey, Rob, you know, if I knew about this, I, I would do something differently. And I said, okay, let's rewind and uh, play it out as if you knew this character because their character would have known because their character lives in the setting. So that's one way I handle the balance issue is, is that if, if the player didn't realize the implications of something until, oh, wow, you know, I'll, I'll let them... Uh, I'll let them do a take back and, and we, we, we wind back to that and they're much happier for it. And it's a bit of a balance act when you do that and when you don't do that. Cause it, you know, if they did the, you know, telling them what is really a boneheaded action or a deliberate action on their part and they just didn't like the results. So. Yeah. 
Pex, are we at Q&A time? Great and glorious Pex will tell us what to do. We should be hitting uh, show your product time. Oh, five more minutes and then show yeah. your product yeah. time. Yeah, we, we got you, you got show five. your product line and then we got Q&A. We got to fill five minutes first. Oh, no. Well, we're doomed. You know, you, you haven't talked enough over there, Dosh uh, Machine. So you had well, to fill five minutes. Go. You guys are you guys were being so awesome. Hey, by the way, I was that guy. I was that guy that died that you referred to. Oh, um, yes, you are, aren't you? Yes. I'm sorry. But no, but fine. you see what I mean? Like you don't and, and that's I think where Hack yeah. kept coming up with the whole like it's like Monopoly. Like, dude, I I mean remember I did everything I could, which kind of yeah. questionable and pex let's get away with it with i just happened yeah. to have the gods tell me i should hold this stuff for somebody right to try so hard so so it i actually had a lot of fun and i've Good. had to i i have had to back out of of the campaign unfortunately, oh no because for reasons unrelated to that i'm just i we're trying to i i get it I, oh trust I, me i get that my work just up <laughs> because they moved me to a new team and yada yada. You know life, right? I, yes. Fix the house kind of thing. Um, but um, I, I did. I had a lot of fun. Um, it's great to, like I said, each time you know you come into something, there's different expectations and, and you're with different groups. And one of the things that I learned from that, you know, because when you gamify things, uh, it's like a child, right? A child learns things by, you know, going and, and experimenting and then... Right. Oh wait, I don't like the way lemons taste. You know, um, so uh, it's that sort of thing, right? And then we learned that in in this game world, um, yeah, running is is most often the best option. Um, so I really, I actually, like I said, I enjoyed it because I felt like, particularly like there with my uh, second character, basically he shows up and it was just sort of his idiom. You're like, who are you? And and I said, I'm here to help. You know. <laughs> he was literally like this sort of medieval fireman, you know, he was right. running in. And um, when the party was overwhelmed, um, he literally got to funnel and block the tunnel so that everybody right. else escaped. So, I, you know, I was like, hey, that's cool. Um, so, you know, he, he, you know, he died a hero, I think. And he did. And, and that, you know, so for me, that was fun and enjoyable. And that goes, you know, the full circle. It's like all the things that we talk about. That was my player expectation, you know. So, um, you know, that was great. Uh, oh, I expected now, mine to die very first, like, five minutes with right. my one hit point. But it was interesting for me in the fact that I did not start gaming until, a, let's be honest, well after that version you know like my first game was shadowrun first edition then werewolf world of darkness first edition then then i played ad and d somewhere after that so i did i started with ad and d which is a different feel than what we were playing so it, it gave me a better understanding of where like hack is coming from i will also say whereas i'm enjoying playing with pecs in, in that game i don't know that i would run it I am a very, very RP heavy GM. Well, it, it's and, hard. Oh. Yeah, it's hard if your characters are going to die. And, and he did say that after about second level or so, it's a little, you can become a little more attached. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he, yeah, yeah. Because we were talking about um, things like, okay, you know, character backstory. And, you know, I'm looking at it and I'm like, I've got a trail of corpses. Which one? 
um, right. I'm playing the fighter. <laughs> and, um, and so I think that's, that's uh, one of the things that you have to understand, you know, like if, you, if you're going to play a game where death is frequent and common, um, how do you, and how do you connect like, to your character? And do you, you really want to, if you're going to die right. in five minutes? And does that then mean that one of the, best mechanics alternately would be if a system is death heavy to have the ability to generate characters replacement characters very quickly and rapidly and some of that's player learning right um yes so all of those things come into play and those are things that that i like to try to balance out um, <coughs> obviously level one is is tricky for anybody and particularly in old school D D. um but, can i ask a question what's that sure why, is it, why, why is it, thank you, uh, why is it death heavy? Um, well, because we ha I had one hit point. That's why. Okay, I think you had three. So, I think so, you had three. No, no, that's yeah. mechanics. Why was the campaign death heavy? So we had it's the actually the style of that game. Yeah. We, we had the ability to get in over our head, too. And, well, yeah. There's um, always the runaway, flee and terror. Yeah, we, we were. We were those kids that were unsupervised. And, um, you know, bad things happen to unsupervised toddlers. Uh, well, what were you doing then? <laughs> you were going into a dungeon, then I take it? Yeah, yeah. Pretty much. I mean, it, yeah. Okay. Um, it's, it's part of it is the feel of that particular game. Like I said, there's a reason that Hack kept referring to it as basically like Monopoly, is there is a feel to that game where... You don't get necessarily overly attached because your characters can die left and right pretty easily. Did you feel like you had a choice of doing anything else other than going to that dungeon? You always yeah. have a choice. I mean, that's the whole point of role-playing games is you could. I mean, I, when I explain it to other people, in a video game, you get to choose X, Y, or Z. In a role-playing game, you go, I don't want to do any of those. I'm going to steal the bear and then piss on the tavern wench and run away in glee. Nothing says you can't do that. At the same time, did you know, if your characters are trying to follow some sort of story thing and, okay, we're going to go check this out, you kind of, you know, your character wants to go check the thing out. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, well, we could have all said, nope, nope, not following any of this shit. I'm going to sit here in the tavern and get drunk. It's just not a great story if you just sit in the tavern and get drunk. It's, well, it's, uh, the reason and, I'm bringing it up because, you know, I ran an OD&D campaign. And one of the characters had two hit points. But the way the campaign started out is I, I had a, uh, one of the players was the son of a merchant. Okay. Basically a thief type. But his background was he was the son of a merchant. The other player was a magic user who was part of the magic underground the illegal magic part of the town, of, of the society, you know, the, the part that the authorities at the Majors Guild uh, consider to be almost criminal. So they didn't really get into anything combat heavy the first couple of sessions. What they were doing is they were feeling out their way. It, you know, for example, one of the things they got, they got money and experience for is they went and scoped out a rival uh, street gang and got their number, who their leaders are, who their contacts are, 
and what they were doing and brought that back to the patron. And there wasn't a single fight during the whole session. So, I mean, they could have gone to a dungeon. I gave them, they had hooks that would have led to them a dungeon if they opted to pursue it, but they did not opt to do. Yet they had an interesting time because I followed up on what they wanted to do and made it interesting, gave them things. So my point is, it, 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 D&D is whatever the campaign is. I mean, if you make a campaign, if the only... If you feel you have to go into the dungeon, yeah, it's going to be deadly, especially at one hit point, for you, as you were. But if you make the campaign, say, about making connections, you know, while building up to better and better, you know, bigger and better things, then it, you could probably uh, even thrive with one hit point. So I, I Again, this is, um, I think we're, we're eventually going to get to that, but this is the first game, and quite frankly, it's kind of what we signed on for. We knew what we were getting into. Mm-hmm. It's it's basic, and this is how basic plays out. We we I, I felt like I knew what we were getting into, didn't you? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, we, we signed up for it. Like I wanted to get this film because I had never gotten to play it. So now I I I mean, there are different ways to run it, and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not going to put. Uh, Pex's DMing on trial. Here. I'm not either because I, I I was enjoying it. Um, My character is heartbroken, ways. by the way. Yeah. There are different the, ways. The elf the is game. dead, but you know, um, not your character. She wasn't attached to your character. <laughs> I actually meant to write up for the journal her letter I died with all your to, stuff, though. I know. Well, <laughs> but the gods told her to give it to you, so it's okay. She understands that. But so. I, I meant to actually write up as her journal piece, and I didn't get around to it yet. Her writing to his family or to her family that he was gone because she's utterly heartbroken that he's gone. Because I tried to play it off that they knew uh, each other pretty well. Yeah. I thought I had done a pretty good job of it. Well, so, um, so yeah, she's I heartbroken think, about it. I, I, yeah, I think you'll enjoy where it's going right now. Y'all, are, uh, I, I think everybody, as I'm leaving, everybody's in a town. Mm-hmm. And we've been doing reconnaissance around cool. the town rather than just going out. And of course, we did a little bit of that before, too. But we did. Um, I my new character's name is Woods and he's very good at running. Um, awesome. So you know, <laughs> but I'm not in the game now just because yeah. of time. So I bet we did use up those five minutes, though. Yeah. But yes, I'm enjoying the game and I feel like I, I knew what I signed up for. So. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Apparently, you're um, you're a minion now. Yeah. Well, um, I don't remember who he said you're minioned of, but you're someone's minion. He's he's uh, he has some pretty awful stats. I want to say he's like <laughs> ten. Okay, but the but the elf had good stats and was yeah. a second level, and and you know. Yeah. So bad. I decided to invest all of these things into skills like uh, philosophy. So oh, he has a lovely. Level. But he's a philosopher <laughs> storyteller. So, all right. Sorry. Product promotion. Yay. Yay. Okay. So, inverse, uh, that puts me on lead. Um, let's just go on and throw in the usual set of links here. Uh, I'm Andrew Ragland. I'm with Facet Games. I'm line developer for 1879, which is 
the steampunk uh, sequel to Earth Dawn. Yes, Shadowrun used to be the sequel to Earth Dawn. We sold Shadowrun years ago, and uh, 1879 is now the sequel. Where the we pulled the Awakening back 140 years, and we're playing through the the Awakening, which Shadowrun uh, just referenced in backstory. Uh, we also uh, have a bunch of links here uh, for uh, the FASA social presence, uh, the web store, our Facebook, MeWe, uh, we are on Roleplay Cafe, we, uh, there's our link to drive through RPG, so on and so forth. I've also got a link here for my Patreon, uh, which is not FASA stuff. Uh, the Wandering Beekeeper is where I'm developing a classless, levelless uh, system based all around the idea of consequences of player actions. I, it focuses on player agency and on the concept of balance, which we were kind of vaguely talking about earlier, on uh, the idea that balance is a, is a process, not a thing, and so your characters spend a lot of time trying to keep things from flying off one direction or the other and dealing with the consequences of their actions, which will affect their own stats. And that pretty much wraps that up. Go see these links. You know, lots of stuff to see. Brian, I think you're next, aren't you? Oh. We're going reverse oh. order. Yeah, I yeah, I was actually looking for the list and I didn't see it. So, uh, yeah, I'm uh, Brian uh, with Lost Relic Industries. Um, my my wife and I, uh, my wife Liz and I, uh, develop uh, Swords and Shaman of Songguard. Uh, it's basically a tabletop RPG set in the world of Songguard, which is a uh, prehistoric type of post post apocalyptic fantasy setting um, where most of our elves are wild elves, stone age um, and tribal. Uh, our humans live in early bronze and iron age societies. And, um, you know, yeah, uh, gosh, if you like uh, mammoths and, you know, war mammoths and saber tooth cats and, you know, plundering uh, long-lost uh, temples of the High Elves, uh, you know, this might be the game for you. So uh, check us out. I think that puts us at me. I'm Andy. I'm project manager at Fossic. So Andrew's better at all the links than I am. So use all of Andrew's links. Some of mine match. Them are my personal things, like my Discord channel, Twitter, and my Twitch, which... I tend to play on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I try to play Friday or Saturday some point. I curse a lot, so and I don't play any game very well on video games, just so you know. I die a lot in Skyrim by falling off of things. Great fun. Um, we have a lot of neat things coming out with 1879 and Earth Dawn. Somebody mentioned Gen Con. We also have games at Origin. I think all of the 1879 games at Origin I'm running. But we have several Earth Dawn games. And then, of course, at Gen Con, Andrew himself is running some, and Brad, and I believe he mentioned someone else running. So those of you who are signing up for games, sign up for some of ours. Thank you. I am Rob Conley. I am the uh, 
sole proprietor of Batnats Games. I have a number of products that I have listed at the link. Uh, I recently came out with those who following my Waterlands uh, Guideland and Booklet series. I have recently come out with Waterlands of the Magic Realm. I am working on the final book and map, set of maps on that series, Waterlands of the Fantastic Weech. That is the original hex crawl formatted setting. And if you were to assemble all the map, all 18 maps, you would get a campaign world that is five foot wide and nine feet high with thousands of five mile hexes. And if you, um, you heard me talk about, you know, some of my views on campaigns and tabletop role playing. And, uh, you, if, uh, you could see some of that stuff put into practice in my Majestic Waterlands supplement and how they work in an adventure in my Scourge of the Demon Wolf. Uh, both of them are available for what I consider a reasonable price on my website. So hope you guys find them of use and enjoy them. I guess we're ready for questions. Yes, as I unmute the audience for live Q&A. Uh, take me just a minute to do so. If you are afraid or don't want to speak on a mic, you can type your question in chat and one of us will read it aloud and get to it. All right, everybody should be unmuted now. So fire away. Being afraid was never an option for you. An option for them, not you. You don't count for. Oh don't man! Be silly. See, I was yeah. hoping I could have just typed everything. No. <laughs> <laughs> Problem with being a panelist is you have to speak into the microphone. Yeah. Yeah, cons are definitely helping to get over that, though. Just all day. <laughs> that does. Hey, Andrew. Yes. I have a question for you. Uh oh. I know, I'm like that. So, when you were wanting to talk about how the flavor of the game affects the game and back and forth, I feel like 1879 is also another good one that does that. And, you know, you're the line developer for it. So did you purposely try to push it? Because I feel like you did. Because I know how you are. But I don't know that you've ever actually said it. Well, first off, uh, yes, I did. Because, you, you know, everybody tries to push their product line. If you're not pushing your product line, you're not doing your job. Well, I don't mean just the product line. I mean pushing the... The but, setting and the mechanic. Well, in this particular case, it was appropriate uh, because we were talking about um, the flavor and the mechanics interacting. Um, Mage started with the idea of having fundamental knowledges of the universe and coming up with your effects on the fly. That only worked for a very limited set of, of, of players. Um, there were 
as you pointed out, problems with trying to find the right players. If you didn't have the right players, it went off in all sorts of bad directions and completely missed the point, the core point of the game. Uh, 1879 is set in a time where magic is newly returned to Earth and people are trying to figure out how to use it. And so you have all these different groups that are reinventing the same wheel. And of course, they're not sharing their progress with each other. They're trying to develop their own thing, um, partly because they have their own ideas of how it should work and partly because they're trying to get ahead of each other. You know, there's some modeling off, uh, off of uh, academic research and industrial research here. And yes, I'm, I'm actually poking a few not-so-friendly feathers at uh, the industry. But um, the, the premise being you have a base spell list. Nobody ever actually learns the base spells. Their, your characters learn the KEVs, the known as variants, basic, which are basically your particular mage's style laid over the base spell. Um, the example I brought out in uh, the discussion on Miwi was the shield spell. Uh, the sh shield is a base spell and it provides a die roll for getting it off and a die roll for how effective it is and what it costs you to cast it. It has no flavor description at all. Flavor description comes from your style. So if you have a mage of the Galvanic Order, they raise resistance and create a wall of riveted iron plates between themselves and their enemy. Whereas if your mage is of the Order of Britannia Victorious and a military mage, uh, they wrap themselves in arcane armor and create glowing plate mail around themselves. But if you have a priest who is a uh, member of the Anglican Church, they invoke the protection of heaven and get a big glowing cross between them and their enemy. So, same basic, same mechanics all the way around, but how it looks varies, and, and that to some extent will help drive how the story goes, because people are going to react differently to these different special effects. You can also juice things up. The Galvanic Mage, if he wants to, can push uh, to the next version of the spell, Faraday's Bulwark, take some extra strain, have a harder die roll, and get reactive armor. And instead of getting a wall of iron plates, he gets a big crackling wall of electricity. And if, you, if somebody hits it, it shoots back. You know, whack that thing and you get a lightning bolt in return. So... The, the flavor of the setting and the flavor of the character and their style and all informs how the mechanics are, are used, and the mechanics provide the foundation to build that kind of freewheeling system on top of. So yeah, there, that's, that's a, uh, the example I was sort of leading toward, uh, starting, with, starting with me. We we do s some similar things. Um, I'm not. Uh, I, I wouldn't say as as uh, I don't know if crunchy or as involved. Uh, we have crunch in lots of places, but 
um, we we have like in particular, I, I guess magic is one of those things. It's easy to see it and understand that hey, it's unique to your setting because having a uh, defined type of magic and and sort of building mechanics around that is is obviously uh, uh, important. Um, and one of the things that became important to us was, I mean, you know, this is swords and shaman, right? So shamanic magic uh, was very important. And, and it's one, you know, the so the shaman class um, isn't a, um, you know, traditional uh, D&D wizard. You know, he doesn't go out and, or D&D magic user, he doesn't go out and just cast spells, um, or she. Um, they one of the things that felt like it was important for them to do was to to be able to enchant uh totems uh and to enchant wards uh and you know and these aren't like the video game versions of those things either um they're you know a totem is something that the shaman uh blesses so they're essentially creating their own magic item and if they wear or are in contact with that totem they gain its powers passively um they can hand it to someone else or whatever uh award um is what it sort of sounds like it's something to produce uh a ward of of protection or an aura if you will around an object um and as long as that object is stationary you know if if you move that object or the shaman decides to dispel the ward uh then the effect is lost but um you know, unless it's, uh, like I said, if, if it's something that they move, it, it then becomes, uh, the, the magic is lost and the ward is no longer, you know, no longer in effect. So to have these different kinds of mechanics based on, on um, the concept that they're channeling power through other objects that they've empowered, um, they also can do things uh, that are specific to the shaman um, that no other class can do. Whereas a shaman can hand his totem over, he can also um, go through ritual tattooing or scarification and in, in effect cast a totem back on himself. And so these things were very important to, the, to us and to our world. And so we've built in mechanics for that. They're not, you know, like I said, they're not involved. They're not hugely complex, but they're there. Yeah, what's uh, my majestic waterlands? I uh, when I translated it back to OD and D, I was uh, my primary goal was to remain compatible so people can use supplements and stuff because in the OSR, you know, kick bashing is the rule, not the exception. So the more you're able to work with other people's stuff, the better off. The more appealing your material is. So the one of the first things I I did was like I did with uh, GURPS magic is I defined the D&D spellcaster magic user as the pinnacle of magic. So any alternatives I would, would present would be inferior in some way. The other thing I did was uh, so the first thing I did was so my uh, as it developed using fantasy hero and GURPS my campaign, which was a tad more magic rich than your standard uh, OD&D game. And uh, so what I did was I took a, a rip a, a page out of 4th, D&D 4th edition of all things. And 
I really like their idea of uh, being able to cast spells out of a spellbook as a ritual. So I just adopted that rule. It's still resource limited in that you have to have uh, you have to have bought components. Now I didn't make them, but you don't have to actually have an inventory of feathers and a pinch of uh, talcum powder and stuff. No, you just you buy a hundred silver pieces worth of components. You just record that total amount as how the amount of spell components are in your hand. So every time you cast a ritual, it takes ten minutes. So you're not going to be doing this in battle. And it takes ten minutes. You you spend so much components, and the spell happens. So which, which is great. That means the utility spells got used a lot more, which is the was the case when I ran things under curves. And then I started. I used that idea of ritual magic to build other classes, like older forms of magic, like the uh, artificers. All they can do is cast spells by ritual. They can't memorize spells. The whole spell memorization came later. And so I made a class based around that. And the class is noticeably weaker than the regular magic user, but it has its own backstory, its own place in the setting. And some people, some players were in, played it and were interested. And I made rune, quest, uh, rune, uh, rune casters based off of the idea of ritual magic and so forth and so on. And I introduced things like uh, Viz, which is magic in a physical form. Now in GURPS, that was worth one mana point. Uh, you know, and a character would have like uh, anywhere between 10 to, 15, to 13 mana at their disposal before they have to rest and recuperate. So one biz was not a world beater, but it was, you know, significant. And the same, so what I did was one biz in uh, my, uh, in OD&D is if you can spend, if you have a spell memorized, and you you blow a viz, uh, you still you can cast a spell and it still remains in memory. Uh, however, you need two viz if you want to have do that for a second level spell, three viz, a third level spell, or you can turn the viz in. And if it costs, say like uh, a thousand uh, gold pieces to make a magic item, it's worth the viz. One viz is worth a hundred of that. So I could give out magical treasure that was useful to a magic user but it wasn't just gold pieces, so to speak. And uh, so that's, that's, that was my take on magic. And I was so bit by bit, I was able to adapt D&D to what I've been doing for the 20 years I've been running Fantasy Heroes and GURPS. And uh, it worked out quite well. And also about Made the Ascension, um, I actually used that, not just as its own thing, I used incorporate. I used GURPS made the attention, incorporated into my uh, Majestic Wildlands campaign as a higher form of magic. We called the players called it God Magic. And what I did, what the way I explained paradox is, uh, I had to modify it because my campaign was fantasy based. But when we did play a session or two with the way it was in the books, you know, modern era with magic. And the way I explain to the characters and the, the players, and they seem to get it, is that if you're able to, to make your spell seem like coincidence, then that's automatically, that's less paradox. The more it doesn't seem like coincidence, then uh, the, more par the, more apt, the more the chance that the paradox would kick in. And I would use example is like, if you cause the guy's cell phone to blow up in a fireball 
then that's that's highly unlikely. So you you're, you're not you're gonna probably get some amount of paradox for that. But if it just looks like the battery died, it could change out the batteries in theory. But you know that is not without that that is a coincidence. So the paradox for that is correspondingly less. And uh, they seem they seem to get it. Even the the more power gamer types. In fact. <laughs> they power game coincidences, but at least they were trying. So, and their spell wasn't wasn't overt. That's for sure. They kept arguing me. Well, this would be a coincidence in this situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess so. Or no, it's not going to be a, ever be a coincidence like that. I don't know if that helps, but that's what I did. Well, we're coming up on the 11 o'clock, and I've got a game in an hour. Okay. Lovely meeting, everybody. Nice seeing you again, Andrew. I never hear from you. Paul, right. Good luck everybody else, it was good seeing you guys. Yep. 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 Have a good day, everyone. Take it easy. See you around. Take care. Any questions for anybody? Last call for questions. Did we just put everyone's mind at ease about everything? I don't know. Jebron over there usually has like 30 questions he likes to ask. No offense, they're great. I love having them. Yeah. He's giving us a break this week. I think he already uh, threw enough ginger ale bottles he ran out. Or he's like, yeah, these these guys can't can't help. <laughs> Hmm. All right. Well, does anybody have any last parting words before we uh, kick uh, Craig out of here? That sounds ominous. <laughs> Nobody likes Craig. Hmm. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode, gang. Uh, thank you all for uh, coming and talking with our uh, audience here, or talking to our audience, since there wasn't very many questions. All right. Thank you. All right. See you next time. Yeah, thanks, guys.